uh, have our, our third webinar. Uh, so we have uh, three guests with us today. We have Nima from Jirasi. He is a, a partner at Jirasi handling, uh, handling work with some of the major lenders in the private lending industry. Um, he works with various debt funds, providing them services. Uh, we also have uh, Joseph Jamel. Uh, so Joe is a principal at ICER. They uh, buy assets nationwide um, and are amassing uh, quite a portfolio at this time. We also have Mark Hirschberg from Topaz. Um, Mark is actively buying multifamily assets in uh, markets such as Texas and Florida. They have over 2,000 units under ownership at this time, and uh, they are one of the most quickly uh, expanding groups in, in, on the multifamily side in the country today. So we're, we're all, we all kind of gathered to talk about the eviction moratorium. It's one of these like uh, COVID-esque themes that has never really happened before. And we're all just kind of trying to understand and like see what's going to happen next. So uh, with that being said, I'll open up to questions to the guys. First one's going to be to uh, Nima. So Nima, how would you say the eviction moratorium has impacted the lending market? Yeah, so I would say it's the eviction moratorium has probably been uh, more bark than bite. And what I mean by that is that particularly when the CDC passed the nationwide eviction moratorium, I think that was the shockwave um, of saying, wait, there's nowhere in the country that you can evict and all this tenant needs to do is show up with a piece of paper that says, I meet these things. You don't have to validate, you don't have to verify um, you know, any of the content they provided in there, but as long as they show you the magical paper that the CDC uh, you know, so kindly put on their website <laughs> to, to bring to the landlord, you could not evict. Um, and so I, and, and I would say is, you know, you have asked this, and I, I think we'll talk about it later, is similar with foreclosure moratoriums. I think similarly as shockwaves when announced, a lot of fear um, as a mortgage lender, you know, kind of the downstream impact, right? Lenders generally, they're, they're not property owners, so they would have to foreclose to, to truly care, but this could mess if the borrower was unable to pay because they're not getting rental income flows because of this, um, it would be problematic. So the initial impact um, was a change in underwriting criteria. Uh, if you guys recall, all the way back in Q2 of 2020, um, you know, the only real multifamily lender in town was Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac because they were the only ones that were gonna guarantee that that loan would be purchased. Um, and what did they do? They said, we wanted cash reserves, right? Everyone that was in the pipeline that was about to get a loan said, we want cash reserves. We're not going to, I don't care where you're at. I don't care if we're about to fund your loan. If you don't show us cash reserves, we're unwilling to enter this loan anymore because we don't know what the impacts of these eviction actions are going to take. We don't know how many of your tenants are going to be unable to pay you. Um, I think time has proven that the impacts weren't that significant. 
um, to a great degree. And I, I, I pulled up some interesting stats this morning, knowing that we would be on this webinar. Um, I looked at uh, National Multifamily Housing Council's stats. So they, they carry stats on the multifamily market and on delinquencies on the tenancy side. Um, June of uh, 2021, last month, 95.6% um, was the collection rate, right? And it's actually stayed almost entirely consistent this entire year. So for all the fear, for all the bark, for all the, the you know, up in arms about this stuff, uh, actual impact, not that much. I mean, I, I guess as a follow-up to that, do you think that there's going to be any sort of impact in the future? Some, yeah. I mean, I, you know, it, it's, the, the, there's clearly going to be, the, the question you really have to, to ask is, is you have, and, and it's, this is an issue of a bigger problem. The bigger challenge is government interference in every level, right? Look at every part of the market, interest rates, unemployment, every aspect of our entire economy has some level of government interference and has had it for the past you know, 13 months, right? Those levers are all getting pulled back slowly. Eviction's one of them. That's the, the one that'll be done probably by the end of this month. The, you know, the CDC said in their last, um, uh, the, when they extended the eviction moratorium, uh, they, in the actual um, memorandum that went out by the CDC, they said this is intended to be the last postponement, right? So I think we, we expect at July 31, there will no longer be an eviction moratorium in place. That's one lever getting pulled back. Based on the fact that with it in place, we have a 3.2% delinquency rate, whatever, right? I mean, is that is that probably, I think that look, when you look at, that's our pre-COVID average anyway. So it's not, it doesn't appear to, it, it sounds like on, on August 1, it'll look a lot like July 1, um, and it won't be some huge impact. The bigger question is what happens when each of these levers get pulled back and which one of these levers or how many of these levers when they get pulled back will start truly having an impact because you will have necessarily some reaction to the lack of government involvement. Um, and, and that's really the question. Yeah, I mean, I think, like, I think with large owner operators, guys who own 10,000 plus doors, they can withstand any sort of fluctuations in the market as opposed to a little guy who just has 10 doors, 100 doors. If he loses 10 tenants, he's gonna, he's gonna have an issue. Um, so next question, I'm gonna shoot over to Joe. Um, so Joe, how would you say the eviction moratorium affected your business as an owner operator? So, um... I think it affected us greatly as an owner operator in New York. Um, you know, I think that some of the statistics he's referencing are really nationwide statistics, um, but there's a lot of differences between how New York handled it and other, other states handled it. Um, a lot of the way this was implemented was really dependent on the local governments. So depending on what the makeup of the local governments were, that's, you know, what kind of effect it had on, you know, the owners in that, in that area. Um, so I think, you know, everybody, everybody sort of could feel that initially some sort of eviction moratorium was, was justified, right? You have people that are sheltering in place. You have people that don't want to get sick. Um, you have a nationwide lockdown. So, you know, if you're going to kick people out of their homes, 
that's kind of, you know, counter to, you know, keeping everybody sheltered in place. Um, but at a certain point, you know, things were opening up um, to just have a blanket, you know, uh, eviction moratorium and say that you can't evict anybody that's claiming um, some sort of COVID hardship, um, you know, that made things a lot more difficult. Um, so as time went on, there's a lot of different areas in, in, in the country that started to require more and more proof. And they were more and more stringent about what, what they were accepting from, 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 from the courts were accepting from the tenants. Um, but New York was like, they didn't ask for anything, you know, more than just the initial, the initial uh, you know, fill this paper out that you're having a hardship. Um, so, so, you know, I think that, you know, there's two different ty types of impacts. There's a practical impact there because practically, like I can't, I can't, uh, I can't collect the, you know, I can't evict a tenant, I can't collect the rent. And then there's um, like a sentimental impact. Like what message are you sending tenants? What message are you sending landlords? And the message was, oh, tenants, you don't have to pay your rent. It doesn't matter. Um, you could basically not pay your rent and we're on your side and landlords, we don't care about you at all. And, you know, there's no reason to this. There's no like rationale or reason to this because we're going to, you know, make this a, a carte blanche thing where, um, you know, you can't ask for, for, you can't ask anything of the tenant if they fill out a piece of paper. Um, so we, we've had, we've had a lot of challenges. Um, you know, there's a lot of things that people were going through during COVID um, financially, you know, or, or otherwise. Um, so for example, we had a tenant who was going through a divorce, right? Divorce rate, rates went up because of COVID. So he was going through a divorce. So he's like, okay, I'm dealing with a divorce. Even though I have a job, there's nothing wrong with my, with my job. Um, I'm getting the same money I was getting before COVID, but you know, if I don't have to pay rent for 10 months and I could save 30 grand and nothing's going to happen to me, you know, it'll make my divorce a lot easier. So that has nothing to do with the landlord, but that's something that we had to deal with because he was able to do that. Um, so we, you know, we definitely, it was definitely challenging throughout and still challenging. Like we're not at the cash flow levels that we were pre-COVID um, just because of the number one, you know, rent dipped in New York just because of the mass exodus. And number two, just the sentiment overall. Um, now the eviction moratorium is gonna get lifted and now we got to take all these people to court and it's going to take another six to 12 months, you know, because of the way New York operates. So it's a pretty big mess and disaster in New York from our perspective. For sure. And I think, I mean, just to use that as a segue, I think that's why groups like, like yours are buying actively out of state. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think really the sentiment part more than anything um, obviously financially, but the sentiment part more than anything, um, you know, if we're not, if your investment's not appreciated where you're investing, it, it's hard to continue to like bang your head against the wall and invest there. So at some point you want to go somewhere where they're, they're, you know, they're welcoming you. Yeah. No, I think that's going to be a sort of common trend, uh, in the coming months and years, just New York groups going out of state, go to friendlier, warmer climates. Yeah, yeah, 100%.
Um, so next question is going to be from Mark. Um, Mark, so how would you say that uh, different states are treating the eviction moratorium differently? Great question. So um, obviously, you know, that's very much dependent on, you know, really uh, kind of the local municipality, um, as well as the state. Um, so local and state governments is a big plays a big role in that. Now, ideologically, from an ideological standpoint, there are uh, notable differences between that of um, what you call, you know, your, um, you know, more conservative leaning and uh, people that are saying, hey, ideologically, this is not something we want uh, getting in the way of our lifestyle. Um, so it's something that we feel that, you know, is really um, uh, very much dependent on the markets. I could speak to Florida and Texas specifically. Um, Florida and Texas were um, never truly closed, if you will, um, during the pandemic. Um, yes, they were shut down the first couple months of the pandemic. Evictions were um, closed uh, due to, um, like we spoke about earlier, due to a federal mandate. Um, but on a local level, um, people were acting as if it wasn't uh, necessarily um, a, a, a shutdown, if you will. Um, so that helped uh, keep the local uh, um, economies where we own multi um, open. People were going to their, to their offices, uh, workforce housing individuals were going to their offices. Um, people were uh, very much still going out, spending money, um, you know, and cooperating to a large extent with our managers um, because they wanted to use the gym on the property, which is outside the leasing office or right next door or inside the leasing office. Um, so we were able to kind of get a handle on focus on the technology and the, and the hyper communication with our tenants in order to mitigate some of that, uh, you know, delayed, you know, delinquency on rent and or uh, payment plans that we put in place. Um, a lot of that did occur, um, more so in the first three to six months of COVID hit. Uh, thereafter, there wasn't as many individuals, um, you know, claiming and, and showing proof that they're unable to meet the, uh, you know, meet the requirements. So um, that that's sort of what we're seeing at this time. I mean, you know, I want I want to note on kind of what Nima said, which is a great point that this that the CDC, um, you know, extended the eviction now through July which is expected for likely to be the final time, right? And, um, you know, while the agency cited the ongoing distribution of rental assistance money, um, the reality is we're questioning whether that rental assistance money is really needed at most of our, most of our properties. Um, most people have adequate, uh, you know, um, are being, you know, still uh, are not being let go or the ones that are had issues initially and they, those tenants came back to us um, using it as a, as a viable excuse, if you will, um, because of the current climate, but not because they can't pay rent. Um, they were troublesome tenants prior to that. Um, so it just exasperated a lot of what was going on. Um, and then also to worthwhile noting, um, which uh, Nima also noted, uh, mentioned is that, um, you know, 70, about 76% of apartment households made full or partial payments by July 6th. Um, based on an NMHC rent payment tracker, which uh, Nima also mentioned. Um, so what that shows you is that, you know, people are even in the most dire positions, 
um, and situations, they're still coming up to pay their rents um, and they're figuring out ways to do so. Um, so that's something that we're seeing as a good statistic to understand what's going on in the market. Um, we are, uh, we have um, had to get crafty and creative in terms of our approach to tenants who um, were not willing to pay and under the moratorium, we couldn't evict them. Um, we were, you know, giving them incentives to leave. Um, that's less than the potential liability of holding them in uh, till the moratorium gets uplifted. So that was part of a lot of deal negotiations were going on between our managers and our tenants um, on a fairly regular basis, more so than we've ever experienced prior to COVID. Um, so that's worth noting. And then I also want to mention something really interesting, which uh, multi-housing news as a contributor to them, um, they actually just came out with uh, what's a poll on the end of the federal eviction moratorium. And they, their question was, what will the biggest impact of the end of the you know, federal eviction moratorium uh, be for this month? And what's interesting to note is that 38% of people who answered the poll said evictions will free up units for lease up. 21% uh, said owners and residents will make financial arrangements. 17% uh, ramped up evictions will create bad will for the industry. And 25% said states will step in with new protections. So um, I think, you know, what we're talking about to your question earlier was back to the states, um, they will create new protections and they do have uh, rental housing assistance programs. For example, Houston um, has more money that they're putting out for rental assistance that's been that's been leveraged and used by tenants more so, I think, than any other city um, in Texas. So that's interesting to note as well. And that program worked out, and they still have excess dollars to deploy. So there's definitely adequate amount of funding in place. The question is at this point, I think, in what myself and all kind of a, the mid-sized or larger landlords are asking in Florida and multifamily landlords in Florida and Texas are asking is, is it really necessary anymore? Is this something really necessary or is this something becoming um, that people are becoming dependent on as opposed to, is this becoming a rental assistance as opposed to rental dependence? And that's where the line's getting blurred a lot today. I think I want to challenge the notion that it was the eviction moratorium was ever necessary. Uh, the government was uh, giving these stimulus checks to all these tenants and like literally just injecting thousands and thousands of dollars over and over again uh, in numerous rounds to these tenants who could have easily taken that money and paid their rent. But instead they blew it on vacations and who knows what. You know, it's funny you say that, uh, Andrew, just because the, so I covered the initial CDC eviction moratorium and actually did a, a little bit of a, a dive into kind of how did this, it was a really just weird thing, right? Like why, why is the CDC telling us who, what's happening from a landlord tenancy perspective? Aren't there other federal agencies that should probably be getting involved other than the CDC? And so I was trying to understand, you know, really answer the question is why the CDC and, 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 and not, you know, a, a housing agency. And when you um, read through the, the kind of the origin side of it, uh, and not oranges, in case you guys were wondering <laughs> which were, uh, but the origins of how we got here, um, there was actually a, an initial memo that went out and it was right before, you know, we're, we're in the middle, you have to remember the middle of an election year. Um, and there was a memo that went out basically saying, um, we want the CDC to look into 
the impacts of people being forced to leave their places through an eviction and what those impacts might be as it relates to the coronavirus, right? And whether there should be some sort of stay on evictions because of the impacts that evictions would have should we have to evict a lot of people when looking at the coronavirus. Like that was how the memo was written, right? And then a month later, the CDC comes out and states, oh, by the way, this would have a negative impact uh, as it relates to COVID cases if we had evictions occurring during this time, right? And the initial moratorium, if you recall, was through December 31st, right? The fact is we will get you through this election, right? Uh, and, uh, you know, as, as you all know, the politics of, of today's politics, uh, you know, there, there's definitely no, uh, there's not a huge federal desire um, to, if you ever wanted to know whether they're on the landlord or tenant side, I don't think there's a lot of confusion about our, our current federal policy side. Yeah, no, like I think that's a valid point. Might like help uh, shed light on the origin of the moratorium. Um, it, yeah, I just think the entire thing is just kind of peculiar. Um, Mark and I were talking about the eviction moratorium before the webinar, and both of us kind of agreed that one thing's for certain, uh, all the landlords are ticked off about it, and so are all the tenants. Um, so. Yeah, no, it's a great point, Andrew. I mean, I, I, you know, I definitely see a lot of that um, you know, stress being more laid on the landlords and our managers um, in turn. Um, and it's definitely not been, uh, you know, well balanced in terms of um, how they've had to operate in terms of um, communication, in terms of, you know, working essentially double, if not three times as hard to collect the rents that we were collecting yesterday um, prior to COVID. So that's the type of thing that and, and unfortunately, they're not being, you know, we're not enough of a growth market where we could say, okay, for doing all that three times the amount of work that you're doing, we're going to pay you three times the amount we paid you yesterday. That's just not what's going on in our industry. So a lot of managers have shuffled. Um, I've never seen more uh, larger shuffle in management, um, nor have my partners, which in aggregate between all four of my partners probably have over 100,000 units under management and ownership. And I would say um, we've never seen a bigger shuffle and redistribution of talent ever. Um, our biggest problem recently, and this is not to segue outwards, but rather to notate that um, the high unemployment, um, you know, payments have also been causing us to not be able to find, you know, landscapers at good pricing or enough landscapers, um, enough maintenance techs at the properties. Most of our properties are garden style. So maintenance techs was another big, you know, issue, um, you know, as well as uh, other low kind of uh, uh, lower of the end or modest uh, salaried employees that were involved with our properties. So that, that was something that was really difficult for us to wrap our heads around. Um, but at the same time, we managed to, um, you know, remind them that this is a long-term focus. This is something that's a short-term, you know, blimp that we have to get through and we're going to ride it out together. And, um, it's going to be, you know, the light that end of the tunnel where we could all prosper. So that was something that our managers did phenomenally well. But at the same time, we had to deal with managers shuffling and leaving and new ones coming in and new leasing agents coming into the property. So it was, a, you know, a lot of um, 
uh, damage control needed this year, combined with a lot of kind of proactive ex anticipations of potential, um, uh, you know, lateral movement within the industry. Um, so that that's what went on. And I, I want to note also, I think it's really important to understand because we're talking about moratoriums, the terms of the moratorium, the eviction following and the filings that being allowed. So I think this is something important to highlight is that the property owner, you know, can evict the renter, you know, if they provide a declaration certifying that the renter is making the best efforts to obtain government assistance among other items. That, you know, what that means is very loosely defined by the government. And that gave a lot of people a loophole to not pay rent. Um, so just to make that clear, in addition to what we spoke about earlier, it also gave a lot of renters to say, hey, you know, we made a declaration surviving that we, you know, we're making best efforts to pay our rent. Those best efforts weren't always true and uh, honest with, you know, what was going on in their personal uh, finances. Um, that's where we we're finding majority of the time when we got those. Then also something, you know, it's really interesting that came out um, you know, with the new paper um, under, you know, uh, the FHFA, you know, Federal Housing uh, Financing Authority, um, you know, is, are three main kind of findings. Um, one is eviction moratoriums prevented eviction during crisis during the pandemic. Two, the potential uh, back rent owed is concerning factor going forwards. Um, and three, I would tell you is, is, is adequate funding for renter support is available, but deployment of that funding is critical. And that's what's been causing the biggest issues to date. And those are the main factors on the, on, the, on the chopping block that the government has to address now in the near term. So those are three, three main items that we can get into further detail if you're interested, but those are the three main items that we've seen to date um, that are still major concerns, expressed concerns on part of the Federal Housing Financing Authority. Yeah, no, I think, look, valid point. Um, I think those three issues are just part of a whole host of issues going on today. Um, it's like, as you kind of alluded to, there's such a, a shortage of uh, employees out there, just not only on the like multifamily ownership side, but across so many uh, so many fields. Um, there, there's a shortage of housing going on. There's a shortage of uh, building materials. There's so many issues going on today that affect uh, landlords and operators that it's kind of hard to like even really know to begin where to start talking about it. Um, so next question with over to Nima. So uh, Nima's experience is predominantly with uh, working with lenders, representing them on the, the fund side. So I'll kind of just use that as a, a segue to discuss how the foreclosure moratorium is affecting your, your lender clients. Right. And so if you recall, um, you know, and similar to the eviction moratorium, there are uh, federal uh, issues and there are state issues. Uh, and as, as you know, both uh, Joe and Mark have been talking about it, oftentimes the state tend to be where there's more aggressive teeth and when there's heavier actions. And so uh, the federal side appears to have had less impact. 
from a, a practice perspective, I primarily represent non-bank mortgage lenders, right? So debt funds, private lenders, those sorts of things. So um, while I track what's happening on the conventional mortgage side, um, it's it's not my primary area of practice, but it's instructive and it's definitely something that we've, that we've been watching. So um, related to the actual foreclosure moratorium, initially there was significant impact uh, from a client level, particularly in states such as New York, um, where there was just a, a complete cessation of activity, right? So uh, initial shock to the system, couldn't go anywhere. And that was very common in many judicial foreclosure states, inclusive of California, actually. And California is generally a non-judicial foreclosure state. Um, but even in California, they had, a, they had a complete moratorium on judicial foreclosures for whatever reason uh, at the initial, at the outset uh, of COVID. So those first four or five months, roughly, is when you had significant government intervention at the state and federal level. Um, on the federal side, right, you have this extension, but if you look at, in, in one of the things that, that we definitely track here is, uh, are the MBA statistics on aggregate loans in forbearance, right? That's our best canary right now to understand. So I think everyone's trying to say, is, you know, the, 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 I, if you were to sum up the final question of all of this is, is there some significant opportunity that's about to happen because there's some floodgate that's about to open because eviction and or foreclosure moratoriums end and therefore you know are there just going to be a ton of, of properties in the market or a ton of units available or whatever this looks like because we're about to flood the system um and the data doesn't support that um when you look at the foreclosure side of this and you look at um the loans in forbearance currently at its peak it was about eight and a half percent uh, back in June of 2020. Uh, currently, we're around 4%. When you look at the Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae loans, which were the lion shares, they're at 2%. So you're looking at the, the, the numbers currently, and, and within those, there's a fairly significant expectation that even the, the amount that's still left over will uh, exit successfully. And here's where I think is the bigger issue. We've talked about this a, a little bit on here, is that this is very different than previous economic uh, recessions. And the reason behind this is that on the regulatory side, I don't think that the, anyone has a desire to see a bunch of people kicked out of their homes through an eviction or through a foreclosure. And that's the bigger issue that you will see in this, which is you might have the lifting of a foreclosure moratorium in a state saying, look, you can proceed, but you'll also have the back end of either a direct regulatory issue or an indirect regulatory issue. And I'll kind of pontificate on both for a second. So you'll have direct regulatory issue. For example, RESPA just changed the rules. As you guys probably know on the consumer side of this is that they've added additional pre-foreclosure review periods that extend through the rest of this year. So if you're gonna foreclose on a consumer residence that's owner occupied, there's even more additional steps you now must comply with, right? Um, but what's probably the bigger and the indirect side, which I think is probably the more powerful side, is when this happened initially, the state regulators and the federal regulators did something very unusual this time, which they basically said is, in a normal world, a regulator is very, very concerned with, with delinquency uh, of the regulated parties, right? So if you're, if you're regulating Bank of America, you're very interested in Bank of America's delinquent loan rate. And you want Bank of America to get those, the, those loans off their books, which is what creates the opportunity. They're selling the delinquent loans off, right? Because they, the regulator is highly interested in the 
the rate of delinquency. What happened and what makes this very different is that every federal regulator, and this also happens in the credit union world and, and the, the OTC side was, was we expect you to modify and negotiate with your borrowers. That's what we're expecting of you. We're not forcing you to, you don't have to, right? There's no gun to your head per se, but we're letting you know that you can and should negotiate with your borrowers during this time period, right? And so the implicit side of what's happening in the background is, let's even assume that that 4% never goes away. The question becomes, not you have delinquent loans. It's then what happens with them, right? And I don't think that any, you know, the, the, to the degree that there is any semblance of a floodgate of action that comes from this, you will have an immediate government reaction behind it, which will create some further impediment, right? Because no one wants to see people getting kicked out of their homes right now. And so what you're going to end up having is, is either a continued forced or implicit negotiation necessary, a further kicking of cans, right? But what you will likely never happen is sudden, sudden event in which a ton of property is now dumped onto the market because everyone's deciding, you know, the gloves are off, we can finally go and we can finally act now, right? The, the, what, what Mark talked about earlier and the landlord tenant side, which is, hey, we kind of work with our borrowers. We got, you know, hey, what's it gonna take to get you out of the property? The same thing you will see on the foreclosure side, right? The moratorium gone, but the implicit need to continue to work with borrowers and do workouts or some variation is so significant right now and will continue to be so. And to the degree that it's not, then the government will intervene on it again. I think, look, we're not gonna see any sort of widespread distress on residential or multifamily for the most part. There, there might be a few couple blips uh, and exceptions to that, but for the most part, that's what we expect to be the case, which is why you know, we only lend on those asset types right now. We only lend on residential multifamily. I think when it comes to hospitality, when it comes to hotels, um, when it comes to uh, malls, that there, there is distress on those asset types and that large owner operators, um, which there have been quite a few who've lost assets, uh, throughout COVID. And I would expect that that trend to continue. But what happens every time is that there, there's always some sort of fund or larger institution that swoops in to either foreclose and take over that asset or to buy the distress paper. Um, that there's so much liquidity available for just sitting on the sidelines to scoop up anything that comes online that we're never going to have some sort of like major cataclysmic event where uh, everyone loses everything and no one's buying. Shaking your head like yeah, hey. I, I agree with everything you just said. I mean, the, the problem it, you just added another problem, right? Which is uh, a chasing yield, right? And so you you have this fundamental issue right now where, where I you know I, I remember April of 2020 and every call was like where's the opportunity, right? Everyone thought that there was just gonna be like everyone dumping their notes at 30 cents in the dollar, right? Everyone freaking out. Never happened. It just never materialized, right? And, and I think at its worst, we had, you know, notes being sold at 85%, right? But it isn't great, 
right? But that was like the best you ever got out of this thing, right? And so, and, and that's long gone, right? I mean, every, and right now when you look at, at the, the, you know, in, in the, in at least in the, in the lending marketplace, in the private lending marketplace in particular, there's voracious appetite, right? You, there, is, there is no lack of institutions who are dying to buy whatever the heck you can originate to them, right? So, so the, 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 the challenge you have, I mean, you gave the, the, I think initial expectations when we got into this was, well, what about hotels? What about these devastated industries, right? What's gonna happen? Is that, is that where the opportunity is? But we never really saw delinquencies and defaults go in there either, right? So it goes back into, there was clearly significant modifications for appearances happening in the background that, that and, and what's, what I think really makes this interesting from a, what the regulators were trying to do, but never did, is already happening in the first place. So if, if you, uh, in, in California is a really good example of this. We were in last year, there was a series of bills that California was trying to pass that ended up uh, culminating in, in a final bill. But you saw the regulatory mindset of, of what legislators were trying to accomplish. And it was this, look, you didn't get money for a while. In a normal world, in a normal market cycle, the money you didn't get would all be due at once in a lump sum or would have to be burned or have to pay back fairly quickly, right? That's how the normal market works. This time, don't do that. Just figure out what to do with that money. Put it on the back end of the loan, modify the loan, do something. So basically says, hey, if you can just perform like you were on, in February, 2020, when we're all out of this nonsense and you can continue to make those payments, the regular payments again, we'll figure out how to deal with the arrears, right? We'll make the arrears work there, you know, particularly in an upswing market from an equity perspective that there's probably money at payoff or otherwise, but let's basically leave alone the arrears and kick the arrears down the road. We're not going to have an explosion at the end of this, this modification of forbearance where it's all due at once, right? And that would have been a very traditional approach to this. And that's what the, the regulators were doing in their legislation and never passed. So I'm not aware of any real significant state or federal regulation which requires to do that approach, but it shows you where their mindset was. And I think that's what already, when speaking with mortgage lenders, particularly on commercial assets, it's where they were as well, right? For, for the longest time, what was the point on foreclosing on a hotel? Like, what are you gonna do with it? What's, what is that asset gonna be used for next, right? But can you ride this thing out for 18 months? And if the world goes back to normal, right? Great, we know this thing will income produce again. Right. And so I think that the, 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 you, you probably have a fairly high delinquency rate that needs to be dealt with and a significant arrears that need to be dealt with. But I don't sense that they're suddenly going to say, well, you know what? It's all due today, right? Figure it out. Give me a lump sum. Get me paid off this thing. And if, even if you did, there's probably enough, you know, uh, another mortgage lender sitting in the background going, I'll refi you. No problem. Right. I'm happy to take that loan on my books and I'll refi the whole thing today. Yeah, well, I think two points. I think that there, there's plenty of bridge lenders out there today who are definitely a minority of bridge lenders, but there's plenty of bridge lenders out there who have an appetite for, for loans on hospitality assets. Um, and then the second point being, so you asked what you can do with a vacant hotel. And I, I think what we're seeing owner operators do is go and convert hotels into multifamily assets. Um, I think that there's such a huge shortage of housing in this country today, especially new housing. And if there, there were to be a surplus of vacant assets in good condition, why not just convert them into 
multifamily assets. Yeah, Andrew, I, I'd be happy to take uh, kind of, it's, I think that's a perfect segue for kind of what I was about to touch on, which uh, Albert uh, kindly asked in the group chat, in the in the uh, chat here um, today. So he uh, asked a, bit, a little bit about, you know, is the bigger issue um, lack of affordable housing? And the, the short answer is yes, yes, and yes. Um, and uh, with all capitals, that is. Um, that's why there's more money chasing um, single family rentals, BFRs, uh, built for rent uh, communities. Um, there's uh, multifamily in my space. There's uh, institutional equity that's uh, banging down my doors, trying to figure out where they can place the money with us and, and how quickly. And, and, and they're honestly going to numbers that I don't necessarily agree with underwriting on, um, but they're pushing it because they're being pushed on their end uh, to deploy the capital at low interest rates and um, and the really the, the need for affordable housing for American families. So um, I thought one worthy uh, thing to mention on that um, is definitely, uh, you know, also to Albert, one of Albert's questions was, you know, could Section 8 uh, or some government uh, financing, um, you know, uh, regulators and, and programming um, allow, you know, potentially more dollars to the landlord to then provide um, you know, more Section 8 and make sense of uh, getting, you know, of buying uh, more dilapidated or kind of, you know, tired assets and then making those more viable livable spaces. Um, I think the answer is yes, that, that's definitely something that's going on. Um, the government announced that they're going to continue to pump money into that um, billions of dollars um, on a federal level and also uh, city by city, depending on the city. I know in Jacksonville, there's a tremendous amount of incentives that are coming into play. Um, they want, you know, more HUD deals um, that are regulated by HUD that can, you know, be run by large uh, groups. They don't want smaller groups anymore managing them. They want larger, you know, third-party groups like AMCs of the world or some of the other firms that, you know, we deal with on a regular basis. So, you know, that's the type of thing that we're seeing now is that there's a lot of interest um, you know, on the local level, uh, state level and federal level to, to bring more affordable housing. And I think it's worthwhile noting that these incentives are really aimed to help address the shortage of the affordable rental housing in America, but also, you know, really at a time when rent growth is outpacing wages. That, that's another worthy uh, point is that we're seeing in Jacksonville and Lakeland and Tampa, we're seeing insane amount of rent growth. Orlando just got 22% in six months. I mean, you know, just to get an idea of what's going on. So, you know, of rent growth. So, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a question of, it's, is it sustainable or not? I don't know. I think Florida and Texas have a longer runway than most states, uh, personally. Um, that's part of our investment thesis and seemingly a lot of investors' investment thesis, which is why the Sunbelt has blown up um, as, a, as the Sunbelt states have blown up in terms of amount of capital chasing multifamily deals. Uh, it's unparalleled. Uh, to pre-COVID, um, and I'll give you an example of that is that deals now are, you know, it used to be, you know, 40 to 50 CA signed, and there's, you know, 200 to 300 CA signed, and there's 50 property tours, um, as opposed to previously 50 CA signed and five to 10 properties uh, tours, um, you know, so that's the type of market we're dealing with, and I think it's also worthwhile mentioning that, um, you know, Fannie Mae is really trying to try to step up here. And, you know, if you could, um, you know, 
the concept of the you know sponsored initiated affordability SIA incentives are lowering mortgage payments and you know I'm sure Nima could probably speak to this more than I can but they're you know they're really lowering mortgage payments for borrowers that agreed to preserve or create at least 20% of the units um, at, a, at a property affordable to renters earning 80% of AMI over the life of the loan as well as agreeing to not have monthly rental increases exceed 30% of AMI. So what does that really mean? And 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 you know, in practic in practicality, um, is that you know now people are going to have to uh, you know go in work with the you know work with these agencies like Fannie Mae and not increase the rents, but also get the incentives. So that will help offset um, you know uh, some of the skyrocketing rents that are happening in the Sun Belt states, specifically, i.e., Florida and Texas. So. Um, I think that's something to think about. I also think that, you know, we should think about that, you know, these incentives are really to keep affordable at the property level, you know, for, you know, and reward borrowers with average savings for up to 30 basis points on their, on their all-in coupon, essentially. Um, so, but the, I think one thing to note is that SIA incentives haven't really gained much traction yet amongst the borrowers. And why that is can be argued. I'm sure, you know, you guys have a better insight into that, but um, it really hasn't built enough traction. A lot of people have not been drawing upon that program um, to the level that they, uh, that, you know, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac thought would, would really happen. I think, I think the reason for that is that it's another form of, of regulation. You know, it's an incentivized regulation, but it's another form of regulation. And people would rather be subject to the free markets than to be stuck in some sort, some form of regulation. Absolutely, and also it's it's a function of right uh, local market economics, right? Because if you could, if you could, like to 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 uh, Joseph's point is that you know if you're going to be able to you know do deal with this free market and not have another regulatory body overseeing, you know, looking over your shoulder you know, and you can make, you can make the numbers work, if you will, for lack of a better term, people are going to want that. However, on the flip side is if the numbers don't work and pricing gets exceedingly expensive, which is what we're experiencing in Florida and Texas in the garden style multifamily space, at some point, there's a point of inflection, there's a point of resistance. And I think that point of resistance starts to become, okay, you know, these pricings are too high. The deal only makes sense if we have an affordability program in place. Then those market rate you know, and we're experiencing that right now. We're experiencing that in Jacksonville, um, Tampa, Orlando, and Melbourne, um, where we've never even considered to do affordable deals. Um, we were doing small A affordable, if you will, with Lura's uh, land use restriction agreements for those who aren't aware of what that is. But um, outside of that, we weren't, you know, really doing much with affordable. Now today we're forced to look at affordable as, you know, a way to leverage, um, be able to buy assets in today's environment, hyper-competitive environment, uh, mind you and that's the only way to pencil so that's that's something i think sorry got cut off there that's that's something i think um you know we're going to continue to see um and i think that's something that you know is just really um you know until until there's some sort of adjustment or a correction in pricing um people have to start thinking about affordable a lot more than they did historically as a market rate buyer well, I mean, I think that with just the increasing amount of capital chasing the dwindling amount of deals, uh, institutions are forced to look at affordable assets and uh, all sorts of assets. Um, and just to use that as a segue, 
So, I mean, there's Blackstone and KKR looking at buying up as many single family homes as possible. So, I mean, that's, that's really gonna shake up the, the market in, in so many ways. Um, and it's, I, I think it has a lot of people scared and quite frankly, uh, introducing some sort of uh, incentives for developers to build affordable housing might not be the worst thing in the world, just because having these large institutions come in, all they care about is making as much money as possible and not necessarily providing affordable housing to the American people. Right. I think you automatically create more affordable housing by making more housing. So if you make development easier, if you make, you know, providing housing easier um, from a regulatory standpoint, you don't, you don't, you know, maybe you, you take away the need to put in specific affordable incentives. For example, um, we, we did a few buildings, um, ground up buildings in Harlem, where we got a 421A um, when they changed it to affordable New York. Um, if I could tell you like how, um, anti the program is to the actual name, it's, it's ridiculous. And the reason is because we've made these developments with the idea we're going to get these tax, tax abatements, tax incentives, and the project only made sense because you were getting a tax abatement, right? If you had to build a free market building and pay the tax, you wouldn't be able to do the project. Um, but then after we completed the building and we went to go rent out the units, the process that HPD made us go through, um, I wouldn't even call it a process. It's more like uh, a stop stoppage of any ability to rent the units. Um, it took us uh, probably a year and a half to rent um, the units for the first time. Then we had pretty much all the units vacate because of COVID, you know, people moved. Um, especially like, you know, if you were renting studios and one bedrooms, there was a lot of people that moved. Um, and basically for the last six months, the re-rental re program has been like on hold um, for no reason. They just, it's on hold. Like we, we, we have to, we're having technical issues, right? So if, if um, in that situation, if the, whoever was incentivizing, if the incentivized, you know, agency said, um, okay, you know what, we want you to rent the units, make sure it's like 80% AMI or 100, you know, whatever the AMI is, um, you know, that's one thing, you know, to go and say like you have to rent it and, you know, maybe you have to file something every year or you have to certify something every year or something. But, you know, in New York, it's gotten to the point where they want to run the process for you and they're very bad at running processes. So, now I have tons of units that are supposedly affordable that nobody is able to rent because of the system. And it's a shame. It's a real shame because aside for the shame to me that I'm losing rental income, it's a shame to people that need affordable housing. They, they can't even access these units. It, 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 makes, it makes no sense. So, you know, I think that, you know, whereas you have good intentions maybe to make some sort of a system where you're incentivizing people to, to be affordable, you know, once you get into that mindset of like, we have to control a system, we have to regulate a system, it gets to a point where like, it just, they want to run the whole thing and then it just doesn't run. It's just 
a total stopgap. I think what you're describing is the failure of the 421A program under the de Blasio administration. Under the Bloomberg administration, uh, literally hundreds of skyscrapers went up around New York City that uh, in terms of 80-20 buildings and 70-30 uh, buildings that all uh, or predominantly utilized the 421A program to build just beautiful buildings and public esplanades and all sorts of things. Um, the issue is not the 421A program, the issue is the current administration and their issues in just having a, a city that runs at all. You know, I, I, I hear that. I'm just saying that once you get into that mode of, of regulating a system, so like, where do you draw the line, right? Now they're in control of the system and now it's like, depending on how they want to run it, you're subject to how they want to run it. So, whereas if you could say, okay, people can't build buildings because the taxes are too high. Let's figure out a, like a free market way to solve that problem and make, make it easier for people to develop and not have anybody involved. I don't know what that answer is exactly. You know, I guess lower the taxes, right? But, but let's, let's figure out a way to, to do that and not have to get involved. And now you, you're, you have people that are able to make more housing. If there's more housing, there's more supply, you know, demand meets supply, prices go down. I suppose, but if you take New York as an example, uh, developers that are building anything free market in uh, Manhattan anyway, are building luxury condos, which are luxury rentals that the that majority of people in the city cannot afford. So I don't think there's any real easy solution. And I'm not necessarily the biggest proponent of regulation in every circumstance, but I think that there have been entire neighborhoods in New York City that have built been built with the use of various government subsidies um, and it has worked in the past. And I, right, I mean, sorry, sorry, just, be, just because somebody develops a condo, like doesn't mean it's necessarily a condo. Usually it goes like for sale for, to, to an end user, but there's a lot of condos that people rent, right? So it could potentially still be a rental unit. Um, you know, also if you, if they were, if they're given the ability to make these condos and, you know, maybe the supply for condos goes up too high and now condos aren't in demand and everything shifts to rental. That's what happened like in the 2008 era, a lot of condo buildings ended up shifting into rental. So, you know, I, I think it, just, it matters about supply and demand. And obviously the demand right now is there needs to be more housing. Um, just the supply has to, has to reach the demand in whatever way that happens. And I was gonna say, is, is, I mean, I, I don't, you know, I, I think it's, it's um, there, there are two approaches to the affordable housing issue, right? There's, there's the carrot and the stick. Um, and, and, and they both can work in, in varying degrees. It just kind of depends. One is the, you know, so, you know, carrot approaches is we will, you know, I think Florida did a really interesting um, uh, set of rules a few years ago where they basically says, look, we're gonna require all municipalities to respond to requests within X number of days, right? So it's no longer a decision-making process at the local government level. If a permit is applied for, there's a universal standard within the state of Florida, all municipalities have X days to respond. 
uh, to these requests. And so they built an escalation process. And this is, these, are the rules of, these are the rules of the road in Florida, regardless of whether you're in Poke or you're in Dade, right? And so uh, very smart, you know, obviously still regulated, but a really smart way to basically say, is, look, we're gonna, we're gonna try to reduce the amount of time it takes um, to build housing. Um, but I also don't think that, you know, funny enough, I think that, that as a represent, you know, as a person who represents mortgage lenders, I think a lot of what's in the Truth in Lending Act is actually very good. I mean, the, the fact that we, I think, you know, it, many of my clients would prefer that there's no ability to repay requirements under the Truth in Lending Act. They would, it would help their businesses out a lot if there were no ability to repay requirements and they can make loans and look at the equity of the property and solely the equity of the property and make loans based on that. And sometimes that might make sense. I mean, to some degrees, we as, as a government are locking out people from the equity in their homes, right? Um, and is that necessarily a bad thing? I, I don't know. I mean, it seemed like it got us in a pretty good amount of hot water last time we did it. And so, um, you know, there's, there is a place for what I would say smart government regulations. I think ability to repay is one of the smartest things we've done in the past decade from a regulatory perspective is for the conventional mortgage market is, is sure, you should probably make sure that people can afford to, to repay the debt on their homes so we don't have these giant foreclosure cyclical cycles based on those. But um, to what was being said earlier is, is I think the, 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 the challenge you have is are there bright line rules that can be applied regardless of the person applying them, right? And I think that you've already identified that issue earlier, Andrew, which is look, it's not this program isn't the problem, right? It's how this program gets applied over time can be the problem. And the fact that it's applied in different ways and you see that with, this, with the CFPB, it's the same thing too, right? So it kind of depends on who's at the helm, right? We'll determine what sort of regulations are gonna get past that moment and how aggressive they're gonna be. And that's not very useful in the business context because now you don't know how to build your business anymore. Because you don't know of, look, I'm gonna, if I see your regulations today, I will build my business around your regulations. I know the rules of the road and I will comply with these rules of the road. And I'm gonna to do whatever is necessary to now build my business. But if two years from now, you then completely disrupt my business because you're saying, oh, by the way, none of those rules apply anymore because I'm now going to change it or I'm going to, the way I apply those rules is this, right? You, then there's no way, to, there's, there's nothing you can do about it, right? So you, why would you continue? Then you go back and say, look, I'm just going to do what I know how to do and how I can make money, right? I don't care. There's no point in trying to, this, this opportunity isn't an opportunity because the strings you attach to it don't make sense, right? And that's the, the, the kind of the, the dichotomy of, of no regulation or some regulation or all regulation, right? Is, is do you, can you give me very, very clear rules of the road and will those rules of the road apply in five years from now? Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose it's easier said than done. Yeah. Uh, so I, th I, think the rent, I think the rent laws that changed were a great example of that where everybody was buying buildings based on a certain set of rules because those set of sets of rules were in the jurisdiction of the lawmakers or whatever, they just changed the rules and they changed basically the whole, the whole game. Yeah. Well, okay. I think with consistent regulatory action uh, across the lifetime of your project, that's a great thing. Uh, with smart regulatory action, great thing. When there's uh, sort of this like flip-flopping in the regulatory climate, you don't know what to expect. That's when issues come up. Um, it, it sounds like we could have a, a follow-up webinar on affordable housing and how to implement it. Right. Um, so with that being said, we're, we're kind of at the end of this webinar. Um, really glad how, how it turned out. Just have so many just smart, 
people with different perspectives on just uh, giving their kind of just blunt perspective on things. So uh, with that being said, I'd just like to extend a, a tremendous thank you to our, our panelists, uh, to Nemo from Jirasi. Please uh, make sure to check out uh, Jirasi's upcoming conference, Captivate in Las Vegas. It's a tremendous marketing uh, and networking event for people in the private lending industry. Um, and then uh, Joe, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, everyone, please feel free to send Joe deals in New York City uh, and multifamily deals nationwide. And then uh, same to Mark, uh, please feel, feel free to send him multifamily deals in Texas and Florida. They are actively buying. Um, all right, so thank you so much, everyone, for coming on, and look forward to seeing you next time. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks, Thanks everybody. everybody. Thanks, guys. Take care.